Hello, listeners. I'm David Blakesley, and we are back with another episode of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is episode 122. We're going to be talking about Dracula AD 1972. This is one of those brief little forays that the uh, Criterion channel provided to us to get a little bit of 70s horror into the uh, into their streaming service. It's uh, it was only there for a few months, I believe. It's not accessible now, but as uh, regular listeners of this podcast know, I cover it all. If it's affiliated with Criterion, I'm going to go ahead and give it a spot on my podcast, or at least most of the time. There may be some titles that I'll skip here and there, but uh, this one actually is worth talking about because it does give us an opportunity, it gives me an opportunity in particular, to dive into Hammer Horror. And here to help me out, since I am uh, admittedly a novice to all of this, is someone who I think has been the, spent a little bit more time than I have uh, in the uh, venerable halls of the Hammer Horror Studios. So, Richard Doyle, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be back. All right, Richard. Well, thank you again for jumping into this with me. You are kind of my go-to genre specialist, and I always enjoy kind of getting uh, a little bit of expanded awareness of what's going on in some of these uh, you know subcategories, especially these early 70s uh, era films where there were just so many different sort of micro scenes breaking out in cinema. We've talked about Bruce Lee and Kung Fu movies, We've done a couple episodes together on Shaft and black exploitation. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, a whole range of, you know, science fiction and, and horror and fantasy and action and suspense and all of that. So the Criterion Collection has had a fairly limited selection of horror movies over the years. There may be a few that we reference in our conversations today. But uh, as I've already said, Hammer Horror is a is a tradition, it's a studio, it's a style of filmmaking that I've been aware of for a long time, but have just never really gotten into uh, for a variety of reasons. I don't want to monologue too much here. So uh, why don't you go ahead and give us just a little bit of an overview? I don't know how you want to, you know, open up the subject here, but uh, just kind of, you know, even for my sake, give me some background on Hammer Films and and what they're all about, and uh, we'll take it from there. Okay, sure. Um, uh, Hammer actually traced back to the 1930s. a fellow named William Hines, that's H-I-N-D-S, who was a vaudeville performer who, who like was leaving the business. He went by the stage name William Hammer. So he, hmm. when he got into film production in the 30s, he formed Hammer Productions. But he only made a handful of films back then before uh, pairing up with a Spanish immigrant, Enrique Carreras, who was also a former vaudeville performer and owned some movie theaters. And so the two of them got together and they actually formed a distribution company that distributed films in England. So they were sort of cruising along through World War II and into the post-war era. And in that era, England had a, a, a regulation that if you were going to show an American film, you had to show a British film too. Hmm. Basically to sort of promote British films and not let the British public be over, overwhelmed with American films. Yeah, they, they couldn't compete sort of head-to-head with Hollywood. I mean, they, they yeah. would try. Certainly, there are a lot of excellent British films made during this period, but Hollywood just had the bulk production of every style. So this is kind of a way to you know force some balance, uh, subsidize the British film industry, and just sort of keep 
a foot in the door and 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 get their films screened for the domestic audiences. Right. So what kind of happened after World War II is the Americans had not really exported a ton of films. So when the mm -hmm. war ended, there was a huge influx of American films in Europe. And what the distributors found is they couldn't keep up with enough British films. Hmm. Oh, okay. So a reverse problem yeah. there, right? They had to kind of force feed the British film industry a little bit? Exactly. And, okay. and at that point, Hammer got back into making British films because they needed at first to make British films for themselves hmm. to pair with the American <laughs> films. Okay. So this is this is the post-war late late yes, latter half is, of the forties. Okay. Right. Yeah, this is nineteen forty-nine. Oh, okay. Okay. So a little further, yeah. not immediately following the war, but yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. So what also happened is American distributors, a lot of the American studios were distributing their own, distributing the American films in England themselves. And they had the problem of trying to find American, like British films to pair with their own films. Mm -hmm. So I believe it was Fox got the idea. Let's hire some uh, Brits to make the films for us. Okay. Right. Like we just need some, we just need some some British people to be working on the British side, getting British actors and getting stuff and we'll provide Okay, sure. We'll give them the script and the technical support and whatever. Okay, gotcha. So they contacted this guy Robert Lippert who had been in the film industry and he was sort of the British conduit for this money coming from American studios. And he paired up with Hammer. And Hammer then got in the business of making British films that would be partly paid for by American studio and shown with American films in England. And the American studios would get a little cut of the proceeds. So even though they're technically not like a Hollywood studio movie, they still got you know skin in the game, as they say. So there's a little bit of a, a payback, a financial benefit to them to sort of subsidize all this. Okay, it's making sense. Yeah. So throughout the 1950s, they basically did this and they made mostly crime films, like sort of mm -hmm. cheap, cheap British noir films, often based on uh, popular radio shows. Okay. And, and that kind of carried them through the 50s until the end of the 50s, the British quota system ended. Mm -hmm. So now there was no enhanced demand for British films. Okay, so then they they had to you know earn their their spot in the yeah. in the theaters, justify uh, by making movies that the public wanted to see. Okay, yes, and, but one of the very last films that they made under the deal with the Americans was a film called The Quatermass Experiment, which mm -hmm. was based on a on a British radio show that had been written by Nigel Neal, who was a popular writer of science fiction. And this was a science fiction horror film about an astronaut who comes back to Earth and infected with some alien microbe, and he sort of slowly turns into a monster, and people hunt him down to try to stop him. Okay, so yeah, this is this is like parallel to Forbidden Planet, and you know the 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 kind of War of the Worlds, the explosion of you know weird alien science fiction of the mid to late nineteen fifties, right? Is that yeah. kind of yeah. they're, they're kind of tapping into a a broader trend. I mean, the blob, we just talked about beware of the blob. And of course that references back to 58, uh, Steve McQueen, uh, you know, and his big breakout, a, a very homegrown, small, small production that 
kind of blew up because it just hit a, hit a nerve. And that's about the time I think that uh, Horror of Dracula or Dracula, just plain Dracula as it was produced or released in England, that's kind of where I think this wooden hammer really kind of took off. I think there was a Frankenstein movie that might have been before that as well. Yes, exactly. So what they got from this, they did make a sequel to the Cordy Mass Experiment. Okay. But what they got from this is, well, horror science fiction is selling. Yeah. So they decided that one of the most obvious horror science fiction properties they could do is Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And since it's public domain, they can make Frankenstein. They just can't use anything that looks like Universal's horror makeup for it. Right. So they make The Curse of Frankenstein, which is the genesis of everything that happens to them in the next decade because they decide to make it in color. Mm -hmm. They decide to shoot it like widescreen, which is kind of rare at the time. And they get Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee to co-star in it, who are their big stars for most of the next decade. Yeah, and and I mean, yeah, I I kind of undersold that point in in kicking off this episode. Dr- Dracula AD seventy two does have both of those actors you just named, yeah. and they are, of course, iconic, legendary actors. Probably maybe familiar to younger viewers these days from their roles in Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Cushing in Star Wars, Lee and Lord of the Rings, respectively, but lots of other stuff as well. In fact, you probably, again, can rattle off a wider number of films or range of films that they've been in, but they've both established themselves as pretty legendary performers. Uh, had they Were they prominent prior to the emergence of Hammer Horror? Not not prominent. They were yeah. like working English character actors. They've okay. actually worked together once before this. They're both in Olivier's Hamlet in small parts. Oh, okay. Well, that's been quite a few years since I watched that, but I'll probably want to yeah. spy that out a little bit sometime. Mm-hmm. But this is really their break into like prominence. Sure. Uh, and, th- and of course, they follow up. Frankenstein does well, so they follow it up with Dracula. Mm-hmm. And that puts Lee in the Dracula role, which is sort of is very iconic for him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a great performance. I mean, I guess I'll just, you know, sort of step in right right now to say I did get this little set that has horror of Dracula, uh, Dracula has risen from the grave, taste the blood of Dracula and Dracula AD 1972, which is kind of where I watch this film since it's no longer streaming on the channel. So I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit there, but uh, have to say I was really impressed with the the power of, of Christopher Lee's presence as as the you know as the villain Dracula and Peter Cushing as his you know rival Dr. Van Helsing. Uh, yeah, I, I could sort of see what the hype was all about. You know, just going from my viewing of that kind of initial film, the, the sequels, maybe I'll touch on those and we'll get to the main event shortly. But anyways, yeah, carry on. <laughs> it's good to talk about what the draw is because really, I mean, especially if you focus on the horror of Dracula, mm-hmm. like the big draw is not just this is color and yeah. these kind of films have not been made in color right. really at all until unless you count the 40s version of Phantom of the Opera. But there's also sort of an energy to the movies. It's really almost an action gothic horror with people being far more energetic than they are in like the universal ones from the thirties. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Lee playing Dracula 
not at all like Bela Lugosi, not like a gentleman, but like a sort of part monster, part big charismatic fellow. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, the sensuality is, is definitely so strong, you know, I mean, he his presence the way he wears the cape his, i don't know if it was he like a particularly tall guy i mean i don't yeah. know if, yeah was he like what probably six four six five somewhere in there or? i'm not sure exactly but yeah he is a very the, tall man yeah he he definitely has that imposing stature you know um and it is it's it's both dangerous menacing but also you know, very virile, desirable, uh, you know, uh, if you, if you find that, you know, style of masculinity attractive, yeah, definitely dangerous and sexy. That, that really seems to be like the essence, especially in an era that's, you know, still fairly repressed as far as what's available to be shown on the screen. This was like, whoa, this is some pretty steamy stuff there, <laughs> you know, when he would move in on, on his victims, uh, yeah, very palpable. So these were big hits Mm -hmm. and they weren't just big hits in England. They got American distribution and they were big hits in the United States. Sure. A great drive-in feature or double feature. Um, You know, definitely this, this was pretty startling stuff for the times, just the, the intensity of it, as well as a story that was on the one hand, very familiar. And we talk about franchises and people kind of like, sort of spoon-fed stories, but they have a little bit of a twist to them these days. Well, you know, this is the same thing. I mean, people like a good spooky monster movie, but they want to see something that isn't just a a replica of what they've seen before. And this delivers, yeah. So it led to an interesting twist because when they first announced the intention to make Curse of Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. they got a stern warning from Universal. Oh, yeah. Guarding their turf, yeah. What you can and can't do. So they make Curse of Frankenstein, they make Horror of Dracula, and Universal sees how it does and comes to them, saying, um, how would you like to make more? <laughs> oh, okay. Not a cease and desist, but hey, let's get yeah. in on this, you know? Um, like, let's start opening up our library. How would you like to make a mummy? Sure. Movie? Okay. Right? Okay. So they form a partnership with Universal, get, agreeing to make a certain number of films that will all be sort of gothic horror Mm-hmm. And Universal pays part of the bills and has U.S. distribution. Hmm. And it also kind of revives their classic properties and gives them a second life. So I can see the the win win here. Uh-huh. So what basically happens for Hammer throughout the '60s is they go through a series of these deals. Hmm. They make a, they make a lot of money doing a lot of gothic horror films, which become really sort of the one of the standard horror movies of the 60s the hammer sort of are in at the beginning of this but the italians at the same time are doing the same sort of thing in a much more Mm -hmm. italian bent but Mm -hmm. gothic horror is big there aip in in the u.s is doing the roger corman directed edgar Allan poe adaptations in color and widescreen Right. This is really the bread and butter of horror for the first part of the 60s. And Hammer goes through a series of deals with American studios. Not always the same ones, but saying, you make us six films, we'll pay part of the bills, we get the distribution, and everything's set. And that leads them through most of the Dracula sequels, right? Mm-hmm. It might be a good time to say, so Christopher Lee is great at Dracula, but he doesn't like the part. <laughs> 
Okay, yeah, that's interesting, yeah, because in some of my reading, which, again, very compressed time period, I've kind of done the deep dive over the past, I don't know, five or six days, you know, spent a fair amount of my free time this past weekend just kind of reading reviews and kind of just doing what I could to bone up on it. So I, I just, again, want to not come across as any kind of an expert here. I'm, I'm very much a novice, but uh, pretty intrigued. But that was one of the things that, that I did find uh, somewhat surprising is that Christopher Lee never seemed to really enjoy the, the maybe it was the process of performing as Dracula. I'm sure he enjoyed some of the benefits from it. I'm sure it, you know, it elevated his career, but tell me more about some of his disdain for this role. I think there are two things. One, I mean, early on with, with hammer, you know, he plays Frankenstein's monster and curse of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. He plays Dracula, which is easily the best part. Of the of this, but then he plays the mummy in the mummy. Okay. So I think his first complaint is, you're putting me in roles where I'm just a monster and I don't have anything to do. Hmm. Right. Um, so he finagles quite a few roles in later Hammer films where he's either not the villain. <laughs> okay. Or just or a villain with more substantial parts. I mean, pulling one out of a hat, he plays Rasputin in a movie about Rasputin, where he's got a ton of things to do with it. Yeah, and, and so I can, I can, I can, guess I can sort of understand Christopher Lee's kind of internal sort of self-image, his concept of who he is as a performer or what he's capable of, feeling kind of stilted or stifled, wearing this cape, biting women on the neck, you know. Uh, glaring with his red red bloodshot eyes and you know doing the dracula thing i mean the fact is he he's very impressive in doing that and you know i do want to spend some time at some you know get to the iconic aspects of the vampire as a as a staple of cinema and the enduring fascination but i'll I'll save that for a little bit later because i think we're still kind of establishing you know, what's Hammer about and how did they get to the point where we're talking about AD 1972 version? Right, um, right. But yeah, cont- continue on again. So the other thing I think he had a complaint with is he often thought the scripts were bad. Okay, sure. And the schlocky, cheesy, yeah. gimmicky aspects. Okay. You'll see a few of these where Dracula says almost nothing. And apparently it's because he refused to say the dialogue that was written for Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a bit of yeah. a moment to that when you get to Dracula 80, 1972, he again refused to do part of what was written for that one. <laughs> and and he certainly got the clout. It's not like you're going to yeah. just cancel him and cast somebody else. So he's 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 got some leverage. Uh, he, he's got a little bit of pride or self-respect or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, he just doesn't want to embarrass himself and i guess you know i can i can relate to that to a certain extent you don't like being told that you got to do things that you're going to be wincing or cringing at when you're watching it uh or even having to take the feedback from others read the reviews i mean i i can understand as an artist you know you you get sensitive to certain things and you don't want to just be seen as the the king of cornball horror or whatever so yeah yeah fascinating so he kind of he opts out of the first Dracula sequel. They, the first sequel they do is Brides of Dracula. Mm-hmm. He's he turned it down. And the funny thing about Brides of Dracula is that Dracula isn't in it. Only Ben Helsing. Right. It's not a bad movie, but there's no Dracula. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard it's actually quite good as far as the gothic style and the originality of the story. I mean, it's it's probably 
considered one of the classic Hammer horror films. It just doesn't happen to have Christopher Lee. Right. They talk him back in 65 for the Dracula Prince of Darkness, and he does the rest of the sequels. But mm -hmm. Cushing leaves. Yeah. He really, the, the Frankenstein series is really his because they're all about Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So as the 60s push on, when you get to the end of the 60s, they were they hit a problem. I, I should add, there's like a second generation now in charge of the studio. Anthony Hines is running it with James Carreras, who were sons of the original founders. So what happens basically is the real appeal of gothic stuff dries up. Mm -hmm. You know, the Italians aren't making it anymore. They've moved on and they're doing giallo and other things set in modern day. Yeah. Uh, similar stuff going on in the States. And the last deal they had was with Warner Brothers. And when new management at Warner Brothers took over, they said, sorry, no more deal. We'll only deal with you a film at a time. You know, mm. you pitch us a film, maybe we'll buy it, but we're not buying, we're not making a multi-picture deal with you anymore. And we're not even sure if we're kicking money. It depends upon the project. So Hammer, by the late 60s, ended up scrambling for making movies that somebody will buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's when the sort of controversial, like the nudity increases in them, the blood increases in them, and slightly salacious titles mm -hmm. pop up, right? Yeah. We'll taste the blood of Dracula. I mean, there's an implied, you know, like you're going to be really up there in it. <laughs> Cannibalism or whatever, yeah, okay. So Dracula 80, 1972 happens when... In 1970, AIP releases a film called Count Yorga Vampire, which sets a vampire in current day Los Angeles. Okay. And it's a hit. It's like a vampire interacting with hippies. Okay, sure. So yeah. Warner Brothers says to Hammer, have you got a vampire interacting with hippies? Movie? Right. <laughs> We've got to tap into the youth market. Yeah. Right. And and again, that's been a focus of the podcast. We, I mean, going back to Easy Rider and the new Hollywood and, and other youth oriented films. Yeah. Even the science fiction, you know, the, you know, the Omega man and, and, and that kind of thing. There's, there's a, there's a, a, a fixation really on, on these, these hippie kids, uh, these, you know, baby boomers who are kind of coming of age and really steering popular tastes and represented a huge market of enthusiastic film goers. Again, like in contemporary times, so many of the films that are made are really directed towards youthful tastes and, and, and maybe even audiences that get into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, but still maintain that focus on, you know, nostalgia-based franchises, the Star Wars and, and all of that type of thing. So, yeah, you sort of see these same dynamics playing themselves out here where you've got a long-running series that is now looking for sort of a fresh, um, you know, breeze, uh, some kind of fuel or angle that, uh, you know, that you can't see on TV. Uh, and you want to see your familiar heroes and, and plot devices, but but with that new twist. I mean, we've talked about the Zatoichi films and how you know, the, the violence level kicked up a notch there uh, to compete with other... Uh, genres where you know, some of that explicitness was becoming a lot more routine. And so you've got to sort of keep up with, with the trends. And so <laughs> that's what makes this film to me such a fascinating relic, even though I know in the 
kind of hammer horror fan community it's it's pretty polarizing there's a pretty strong range of opinions uh maybe the majority of which are kind of negative on this film yeah and i gotta say on this watching my i like it more than i have in the past yeah yeah it's not a bad film the other thing that warner brothers insisted when they Mm -hmm. they basically pitched them sure we've got like dracula in in current one they they said okay but you have get peter cushing and christopher lee in it and you got yeah bring your star power bring in the you know the rock music (laughs) stone ground in this case which i guess was a warner brothers affiliated band uh, on the warner label yeah Uh, one of the reviews i read was that the rod stewart and faces were originally going to be because they're an actual english band um, yeah. after all and obviously they went on to much bigger more successful things um i've never heard of stone ground and i'm i'm pretty familiar with early 70s rock you know but uh yeah their singer was the singer for the bo brummels that's like okay really, okay. really, really claim to fame <laughs> Okay, which is a sort of a, a Southern California carryover, a guy who just yeah. kind of was hanging around the scene and in the music business. And Stoneground was kind of, it, from the looks of the band in those early scenes, they looked like they were trying to kind of be some funky, back to nature, you know, kind of bluesy, gritty, hippie band. But, uh, you know, racially integrated uh, you know, multiple female singers, uh, you know, I don't know. they look like maybe a six or maybe even seven piece group altogether, uh, including the vocalists. But uh, I, I can't say I was terribly impressed, but from just a amusing, slightly campy perspective, <laughs> I dug what they were doing, you know, just for the sake of the moment there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so this movie, so, yeah, again, here I am uh, just kind of strolling into Hammer Horror. I think I had seen, certainly, you know, there's a whole host of of memes and video clips featuring Christopher Lee. A lot of the scenes that I saw in watching these four films, it's like, oh, I've seen that. I've seen that GIF before, or, you know, I, I've seen, you know, screenshots or, or, or you know, uh, other types of quotes uh, in particular, Christopher Lee and the Dracula pose and his face, all of that. But yeah, this this one struck me as very much kind of a, a mashup. I mean, you got a little bit of a Beyond the Valley of the Dolls thing going on in those early scenes. You've got uh, Johnny Alucard looking like a little bit of a stand-in for Malcolm McDowell from If and A Clockwork Orange. Uh, you've got some Rosemary's baby stuff, you know, the whole the incantations and and summoning the demons and getting Dracula uh, out of the, out of this ritual. I mean, all very much of a piece, you know, of, of stuff that was happening in pop culture, you know, even like the, you know, the satanic Bible and Anton LaVey and all of that type of thing. Again, that kind of, uh, gothic slash campy kind of somewhat histrionic um performance-based uh, occultism uh as a sort of a a, a new kick <laughs> something way way out kind of as, as johnny kind of pitched it to his his mates uh, after the uh, party was kind of shut down and they're looking for some new kind of kicks <laughs> he's just got the thing they're looking for apparently that that touches on what we refuse to do 
Apparently, there was dialogue in the movie that suggested that Dracula was Satan. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, and that whole summoning scene, he's listing all of these names, many of which were familiar to me, others which I had not heard of before, but I'm, you know. I haven't delved so deep into that lore, but yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that really struck me as, as unique here, as far as how the whole Dracula franchise or lore has shifted to being sort of overtly occultic and, you know, into this whole demonology thing. Whereas in the earlier films, and I've also been uh, listening to Bram Stoker's Dracula, an audiobook adaptation, uh, you get the sense that while while the, the vampires are certainly on the side of evil as a sort of they're, where they're coming from, they you know it seems more like a, sort of a more of an organic type of a curse or this kind of subset of humanity that's been I don't know just kind of fallen under some kind of dark spell. And it's not quite as ritualistic. I don't know if that's making sense, but it feels like the origins or the the motives of Dracula have become more explicitly ritualistic and, and kind of supernatural. Whereas the earlier version of Dracula, it's like this dark force that exists within the natural world. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Does that, you see that kind of progression? Am am I perceiving it correctly? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with like, as you suggested with Rosemary's baby being popular, the satanic horror at the time was popular in general, even before, sure. even yeah. before the exorcist. So that, mm-hmm. you know, hippies doing a black magic ritual to bring the threat in was a common trope in this era. And I sure. think yeah. what they're tapping into, but apparently Lee had, was given, was given dialogue originally that where he explicitly said he was, you know, the evil behind everything. And he objected that that made no sense with the other Dracula film. And he wasn't. Yeah. 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 And again, it's, yeah, I, I, I think I respect his judgment on that, that one. You know, we don't need to inflate Dracula into the overlord of all evil ever. You know, he's, he's a character he's, and, and especially given the fact that in all four of these movies, he does have this tendency of, uh, dying fairly, you know, quickly and crumbling into ashes every time. You know, he never gets away with it. So, uh, I don't think evil is that easily eradicated. Even though uh, Dracula never completely goes away, right? He kind of dies twice in this one. <laughs> yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, but at the, the beginning, which I thought was a pretty cool flashback although and it gives you the sense of this is picking up where the previous movie left off but that was not the case (laughs) no it's it's impossible it's it says it's 1872 and the first movie set in 1880 something so (laughs) yeah yeah so and and again they went with this 100 years ago uh trope which makes no sense i mean you could you could have resurrected Dracula, you know, from the ashes in the graveyard, even if he was dead, buried 10 years ago. <laughs> the hundred years had nothing to do with it. It just sort of, you know, some kind of, you know, gimmick or twist, I guess they felt they needed to throw in there just to give the sense of a passage of time. Um, but yeah, so it was, so you have, can I take it that you've seen all of the different Hammer films that you've been referencing there? Are you pretty well-versed in all of that. I've seen uh, 
probably about 80 percent of their output in the 60s and 70s okay um, yeah and yeah and it's got a very loyal following i know even some of the reviews i was reading this was stuff that a lot of people grew up on you know whether they were kids of like the 70s like i was 80s 90s whatever i mean you know hammer uh, is a way of you know introducing young people to classic horror and especially since it is in color since it is in widescreen maybe even more accessible than those old you know black and white universal uh, classics so this has got a pretty strong hold on a lot of people's imagination maybe their first introduction to these you know legendary monster figures and when i was growing up these were disreputable <laughs> okay like like disreputable because they weren't supposedly that good or because they were just kind of scandalous and sleazy or what a bit of both I, okay when i was like i was really fascinated with universal horror when i was a kid and okay sure and as you know like i'm talking the early 70s yeah you know all you really had was books and stuff you couldn't really Right, the, the pictures, famous monsters, magazines, and and you know things of that sort. But you know, and, and then you would see the movies on TV. There really wasn't much of a revival circuit where you could see you know a print of Frankenstein or Dracula or the Mummy up on the big screen, unless you lived maybe in Los Angeles or something like that. But right. So the reputation that these films had, like among the circles of people who were like writing about Universal, was mm -hmm. you know, Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula are good, but the rest are kind of trashy. So it went downhill pretty fast. Yeah, was, yeah, like yeah, those were classic purist. You know, I mean, even the Horror of Dracula seems to have a lot of pretty basic elements that are pulled right out of the Bram Stoker novel. I mean, it's not it's not a completely faithful adaptation, but the the basic pieces are all there you know you've got the the diary and the you know the characters coming in to understand who this dracula guy is and and van helsing and all of that those were all elements in, in stoker's novel but then once you spin it off into a franchise you're going to take it in all kinds of different directions um so here so here we are you know in 1972 you've got a contemporary setting and it, it still feels like there's uh, some reluctance on the studio's part to get Dracula too far out of the comfort zone, which is long black robes, hanging out in the castle, the crypt, you know, the, the macabre, spooky settings. You, you don't see Dracula in Swing in London. He's not, I mean, he is hanging out with the kids when they come his way, <laughs> yeah. but he's not going out and, and you know, making the scene on Cardinaby Street or Trafalgar Square or any of that type of thing. He's, 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 there's a distance there because I, it seems maybe Christopher Lee didn't want to, you know, take his character into a purely contemporary setting or they just really didn't know how to make that transition. You know, putting him, I mean, he can't be in daylight, so he's got to be in, you know, dark places yeah i i always get the feeling that there's a bit of a stodginess that set it in hammer right yeah as they were trying to like i think the reason they fail really in the 70s to succeed mm -hmm. is they'll make a film like this where it, i mean i think both its virtue and its sort of final handicap is that it's not very much unlike the previous dracula Mm -hmm. 
you know, we, we, the, the modern day setting is feels like window dressing on a typical Dracula film. You know, Dracula could yeah. have somebody that Van Helsing has to go rescue them and, and then he is killed somehow. Like, it, yeah, yeah. I don't think they really know how to break their formula. They can, they can bring it into the modern age, but then they just execute their formula in the modern age. And I think, you know, audiences weren't too into that formula anymore. Right, and even even the idea of tapping into youth culture and contemporary styles and attitudes, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody would have really been convinced that he's he's down with the youth of today. These these young people are all kind of older than teenagers. the The women are attractive. I will say that the the females that they you know, actors that they they cast are all you know quite photogenic and desirable and all of that so uh you know that that element is is successful but uh the johnny alucard thing you know the last name is dracula spelled backwards and if you didn't pick it up they're gonna have it on a piece of paper with the lines drawn between each letter to let you know that alucard is dracula spelled backwards uh his uh christopher neem is the actor um his um over-the-top, uh, flamboyant uh, ritual uh, mass that he does there is, again, it's it's entertaining from just kind of how absurd the whole thing is. But if you're looking for something to give you genuine chills or to really convince you that there's something really dark and sinister and evil going on here, I don't think he really does that. It's just kind of, it's a, it's a comical type of... Uh, you know, danger and, and summoning of, of dark spirits, uh, all of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's also an element where movies that uh, in this time period and earlier that involve you know, hippies or young kids mm-hmm. sort of come in two varieties. There's the, from the point of view of the older folks and aren't these hippies something, right? <laughs> Yeah, and you saw that in the beginning scenes, all yeah. these kind of stodgy, you know, middle-aged and older Brits, like, outrageous, who let these people in this riffraff, you know? I mean, it's like, seriously, like, you just sort of set this up so that they could react with righteous indignation. And I don't think this film ever really leaves that point of view. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, right. It, 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 it gives you a protagonist, like, who's one of the hippies and sort of feigns some, you know identification with the youth of the day, but it really feels like it's gawking at them and making them like an element for exploitation, not like we're going to do a horror film that stars young people. It's more like we're going to do a horror film that stars middle-aged guys' versions of young people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, that, that's kind of where I think the divisiveness sort of sets in because if you, are looking for a a sincerely unique and creative take on the vampire genre this is going to feel either like a just a dead end bad turn or maybe more critically a, a wasted opportunity i mean the fact that you do have christopher lee and peter cushing in the same film they do have some good scenes i think i think the the fight scene at the beginning even though it's very brief and 
it's just sort of you're settling in so it's it's almost over before you fully get the full impact of it and then their their big showdown at the end does have some visceral brutality and and power to it i i think that those are you know if 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 you're there for the lore and the and the appearance of these two iconic actors i guess that makes this particular film sort of indispensable because as you said you don't really get the two of them on screen uh, in the dracula van helsing roles very often so you know appreciate that for what it is uh, but if you're not going to be able to enjoy the you know plot shenanigans of the young people and and uh the uh, stephanie beecham character the the granddaughter was just jessica what is her name yeah. of van helsing yeah. and and her boyfriend bob who's a bit of a dud oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just like th- yeah that, then it's going to feel like there's there's um you know just kind of a big kind of meandering waste of time in the middle because you don't really care too much about the character uh, you know she's the i guess she was originally gonna be the daughter of van helsing but the age gap between yeah. peter cushing as he presents at least on screen and stephanie beecham made it seem like father daughter was a little bit of a stretch mm-hmm. and I, I do think the reason i've like when i first saw this mm-hmm. like maybe about 10 years ago i thought it was yeah. aw- i thought it was awful but sure I, got, I can see the reaction and watching it now, I thought, well, you know, as a Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in a Dracula movie kind of movie, it's not that bad. Like, yeah, it, it does what it needs to do. It, it feels a bit like we're going to make a Dracula movie with the appearance of something new to it. But it, it, it kind of pushed a whole bunch of buttons for me. I was like, oh, I don't know that it's all that much worse than the last two sequels. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, of the four that I watched again in Bang Bang Succession over the past, you know, four or five days, I you know, you got to give Horror of Dracula the the yeah. nod as as the standout of this four pack. Um, the second and third, you know, certainly got, they had their moments as well. Um, the third one particularly seems to be probably the most intense as far as you know the violence and sexuality and that kind of thing. Um, but this one here I found just the most purely entertaining as far as amusement, uh, just because I really like this particular funky era of early 70s filmmaking, you know, and and some of the, uh, you know, cheesy or tacky elements of the pop culture references dropped in. Uh, I liked the soundtrack music actually quite a bit. I, I thought yeah. that was actually pretty cool, and I found... Um, I stream through YouTube music. Uh, you can get the soundtrack online there. And yeah, it's, it's got a pretty good groove to it. It's got a little bit of that almost like shaft like feel, you know, some of that kind of uh, urban kind of shuffle thing, a little percussive and, and uh, yeah, just some elements there. I, I'm sure I'll, I'll use some <laughs> bits for the intros and outros here. So yeah, the the period feel um, was actually pretty appealing to me, and I'm you know glad that they went in this direction rather than doing yet another you know vampire movie set in you know the latter 19th century kind of late Gothic uh, you know mood and atmosphere. Even though there are elements of that here, as we've already discussed. Yeah, the music's by one of the one of the members of Man from Man. 
Okay, sure. Yeah, definitely. The guy knew what he was doing. And he, he put together, I thought, a pretty engaging soundtrack. And I also did like the kind of um, the white noise, I guess, is the, actually the name of the track during the uh, the ritual scene. Oh, yeah. Pretty eerie, you know, experimental, kind of avant-garde, electronic type of stuff. Uh, maybe I'll throw a little segment in right here. But uh, yeah, and, and, and also the, the three women, Stephanie Beecham, uh, Carolyn, oh shoot, I don't Monroe. have names in front of me. Monroe. Carolyn Monroe. Yeah, she's probably uh, the biggest star in this by now. Right, and and I, I I did a little bit of research. So Stephanie Beecham has a pretty good career in TV. <laughs> she was in the TV show Dynasty. And, uh, Carolyn Monroe, tell us about her. I think uh, you know, she, she's... Pretty colorful figure. <laughs> she was really sort of just on the upswing of her career because she was uh, yeah in an AIP film with Vincent Price, the Abominable Doctor Thebes, right before this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but she's got a lot of like really iconic roles after this. Yeah, you know, she was a Bond girl, right? Yeah, and she's um, in a Sinbad movie, and uh, mm-hmm. go, her career goes well into the early eighties with some. Um, horror some pretty prominent horror films maniac sure and uh, yeah but she's sort of a, a an iconic like really f- beautiful woman on film <laughs> oh oh for sure yeah. you, and and here she's pretty young and again some of the reviews i read it's like people are a little frustrated that that she was exited out of the story so yeah. quickly but well it's really you know early that, in her career <laughs> yeah right she's and you know so she's just getting started and she's really not a name yet but yeah the the face the figure all of that is pretty striking i mean you know you notice her right, right from the get-go in that initial party scene where she's just out there dancing it's like oh yeah i kind of noticed her <laughs> you know i get what you're saying there and then um uh, there was a, a young black woman who was in that film who was apparently mick jagger's girlfriend at the time oh i didn't know that uh let me see if i can oh marcia hunt is her name and I believe she had a relationship going with Mick Jagger at the time, but that may be an unfounded rumor. Yeah. But anyways, I, they they were all three very attractive young ladies, and uh, I can see why they were cast and the and the roles that they played. And the director's Canadian. Okay, this Alan Gibson. Yeah, I, and he seems to have been pretty much a TV guy, although yeah. he did do the follow up to this film. Yes. 
which uh, is yeah. I, I okay, so I have not seen the follow up in many years, but I would okay. probably suggest it is legitimately terrible. <laughs> yeah, even though it does have Cushing and Lee again, yeah. it's but, very yeah. strange film that puts Dracula at the front of some big conspiracy to rule the world. Yeah, like a James Bond supervillain yeah. type. Yeah. It's not a good idea. <laughs> they've they've really lost the thread at this yeah. point. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. just flailing around and scrambling. Okay, but yeah. Gibson was from London, Ontario, and I, I think okay. it was very common in these days for Canadians who wanted to break into film to go to England because there's a bigger film industry there. The Canadian film industry was still in sure. infancy in like early. Oh 90s. yeah, he um, did. One Hammer film before this, Crescendo with uh, Stephanie Powers. That's okay. Kind of a, a, more of a thriller, and I, I own it and I've seen it. It's pretty good, right? So I think he basically got this was his move to a bigger film for them. But I don't think it really launched him into much. I mean, he, he had a pretty lengthy career in TV, but his feature films are this one, the next one, and then. You know, yeah. maybe not a whole lot more after that. Yeah. That said, that's the pattern for the British film industry in general. In the sure, market. sure. You know, that the the film industry really dried up for a lot of folks in the late seventies, and most of yeah. them went into television, and very few got back out. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually, uh, if you check out the show notes for these episodes, I will always have like a, a set of links for the director, but I just kind of skipped out on that one. Right. <laughs> really, but I did do a, a section of Hammer Horror links, including the official Hammer Films website and a few uh, sort of beginner's guides. Maybe that's where I'm coming from of recommended, you know, top 10 Hammer films from various sources and perspectives and authorities there. So, yeah. Uh, what other thoughts do you have on Hammer, or, or do we want to get into? I mean, is there anything more you want to say about this particular film before we move into maybe a discussion about Dracula, vampires, uh, etc.? Not so much maybe this film. I'll just say that besides that satanic rights of Dracula, mm-hmm. one of the gimmicks that Hammer did in the later 70s to try to survive, if you want to put it that way, is they made a deal with the Shaw brothers. Yeah, okay, that's right. I read that somewhere. Yeah. Too. So, so, so the <laughs> one last gasp, yeah. right? <laughs> so the last, the last legitimate, like real Dracula film that doesn't have Christopher Lee in it, but does have Peter Cushing, is The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Which, okay, which has, sounds like, yeah, kind yeah. of a Shaolin temple yeah. of vampires or something like that, right? Yeah, okay. Cushing in China, where Dracula yeah. is hiding, and it also has like... Oh. The Chinese hopping vampires idea, if you've ever seen them. So, is there like true martial arts, you know, kicking and punching? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! So they (laughs) made that, and they also made a they made a a thriller called Shatter with Stuart Whitmore and T Lung, who's a big martial arts star at the time. Before that deal dried up after two films, but it's technically the last Dracula film. Is this strange? Hammer Dracula meets Chinese vampires movie. Well, you know, you're going to, you're going to play out every angle. <laughs> At least they didn't do like Dracula meets King Kong or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that will, that movie's still waiting to be made. Well, maybe let's just pull back a little bit here. and Just talk about the, the character of Dracula and vampire movies in particular. I mean, I, as I've said, I've never really 
gotten too deep into um, hammer films or really vampire films at all. I mean, I, I, I think from a early age, I just sort of saw, I love to suck your blood, you know, this kind of corny gimmicky. And, and so to me, I, I never felt a whole lot of fear. Uh, the concept of a Frankenstein, a, a sort of collection of dead bodies assembled to create a, a living creature that had intrigued to me. And, you know, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, but Dracula always just, there was, I'd never identified or, or found myself really drawn to that character or, or even the vampire, the larger genre. I've seen Nosferatu. I've seen Dreyer's Vampire. I've seen, you know, some of the more recent, but I never saw any of the Twilight movies. <laughs> and I, I, I think maybe I've, I saw some of the Coppola uh, version of Dracula, but I don't know. It's just never been a story or a mythos that has engaged me. So this felt to me like one of the most sustained looks I've ever had at this story or this, uh, this basic subgenre within horror. So, um, you know, I don't maybe have a ton of stuff to say about it other than the, the erotic elements here. I definitely got that pretty heavily. And especially in the, in those kind of mid sixties films, I sort of saw, um, how captivating they might be to some viewers. Um, just, you know, especially if, if that element's been kind of pushed aside or s- suppressed, uh, this is a way of sort of wakening that up. The the pleasure that's evident in the women's expressions as they're about to be, you know, devoured by this tall, imposing, vampiric character. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the energy that that whole scene uh, generates, even though it's not one that I, again, still feel really drawn to, but I sort of think I understand the appeal of it maybe a little bit more clearly having focused my attention on it for a while, getting ready for this uh, podcast. What, what are, what's your take on the vampire genre and, and uh, maybe what are some of your favorite uh, examples of, the, of that style of story? Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Lugosi as the Lugosi Dracula's. I think that yeah. the original movie has a startlingly good first 20 minutes, and then is really stagey and not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about Lee's portrayal that I didn't mention is he's not literally, but he's for most people's like viewing habits, the first screen vampire with fangs. Okay. Like that was never depicted except in some fairly obscure Mexican films from a few years earlier. There's like hmm. a couple of Mexican vampire films that were made that had vampires with fangs, but most people would never have seen those. So did Murnau's Nosferatu not have sharp teeth? He has rat teeth. Rat teeth. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Little, yeah. Right. Little the little, little those sharp. little, no literal little pointers. Not, not, not the canines. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I think one of the interesting things about like sort of this, the hammer thing of, of vampires is it really sort of dominates the entire mythology in the seventies where mm-hmm. even in a sense outside of England, because although hammer makes some fairly raunchy vampire films, not Dracula ones, but some, mm-hmm. like some of their late sixties, early seventies, Vampire films involve a lot of nudity, <laughs> like a, right. a lot, like 
for the time period yeah. it really takes off into Europe where the, the vampire mythos in, in some directors like Jean Roland and making films in France becomes an almost poetic blend of like eroticism and horror mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's very artsy and exploitative at the same time, like a very strange kind of film making that is where this kind of vampire film goes um, and then sort of dies out in the late seventies. And by the time you hit the eighties, you get lost boys and stuff. And <laughs> right. Right. It goes back mm-hmm. into juvenilia pretty much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's another way of sort of expressing kind of teenage angst and acting out and, yeah. and kind of wildness and violence and all that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's an interest. There's an interesting, I think like European horror in the seventies is, quite fascinating for the way it um, stops making films that have what you would call literal plots and things and kind of go into strange atmospherics. Right. And and that's sort of where vampire cinema goes. And it's the kind of vampire cinema I I really do like. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of vampire films in the eighties and I don't really like Coppola's Dracula very much. Like it's okay. But I, th- I, th- I think it's very florid and, and, and... Well, it's one of those things where it's like, if you take this whole thing too seriously, mm-hmm. it starts to feel preposterous and just yeah. kind of like you're making it... And it's it's one of the reasons, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time dumping on, you know, contemporary comic book movies, but I, I still have comic books have that kind of cartoonish aspect to them. And when they get real serious and somber and you know, striving for some kind of heavy intellectual or philosophical statement, um, they better be really good at it or or they're going to kind of lose me because I feel like you're just reading way too much into this. These are men in tights, you know, jumping and flitting around. And it's a great escapism, but but please don't try to, you know, persuade me that this is a deep, profound statement about the human condition. Now, it, it can be done. I don't want to just dismiss the whole thing, but there's way too much of it and, and uh, to, to try to sustain it as like, this is today's Shakespeare or something like yeah. that. It's just like, you kind of lose me, you know? Yeah. I, I do feel I should note, um, Lee played Dracula one more time outside of hammer. Okay. It's nowhere near as good of a film as the description is going to sound. Um, he played Dracula in a film called count Dracula for the Spanish horror director, Jess Franco, who made okay, yeah. hundreds of films, but was probably at his peak in the sixties. And mm-hmm. it, it's an attempt to make a very faithful version of the novel. Okay. And uh, Klaus Kinski actually plays Rinfield in it. Hmm. Um, Lee is very good and he's playing Dracula very much like he's written in the novel, including like being a little bit older and having like, yeah. a beard and stuff and being a bit of an right. old man, but it's a very static film. <laughs> like okay, it, it, it ends up feeling like there's so much potential here, but it, it it's kind of, um, it, there's not much life to it, but well, the novel is a bunch of letters and, yeah. diary entries and things like that articles so you're gonna have to get pretty creative but but you're right it, and a lot of it is just the descriptions of things and i can see where you could get pretty quickly bogged down trying to make a movie out of all that yeah it, it's partly interesting because lee wanted to do it because he wanted to play dracula 
like legitimately. In, in his, yeah. You know, okay. I'm going to play Dracula as it's written. Uh, but also, it to this day might actually be the most faithful adaptation of the novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's easy to like nitpick against the various versions that are close, but it, it might be the closest one. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, I feel like maybe I've I've dipped my toe into Hammer Horror. Uh, for listeners uh, who are much better versed in in all of this, um, I hope my naivete didn't you know leave you too uh, put off there, uh, Richard. I think you've done a great job of sort of sketching out the the contours of this saga. Uh, I don't think Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing appear in any. Criterion collection films that have been released on disc, uh, Hamlet. maybe Hamlet. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah, the one that you just mentioned. Okay, there you go. I think I did a search for maybe at least for Christopher Lee on the Criterion website. I don't think I got any results there. Or maybe Hamlet showed up, but I, you know, overlooked that because it didn't seem like oh, he's not in that one. So, okay. Well, thank you for setting me straight on that. But yeah, any any final comments before we uh, wrap things up here? I guess I'll throw in, like in their peak period, I think the two the two Hammer films to look at if you really want to see excellent mm-hmm. Hammer. Um, yeah. Years after they did the two Quatermass films in the late '60s, they do a Quatermass film called Quatermass in the Pit, which is a, a wonderful science fiction film. Okay. About uh, people discovering alien artifacts in a subway station in London that has world shaking implications. Hmm. And then there's a film with Christopher Lee as the lead called The Devil Rides Out. Okay, yeah, I saw posters for that. Yeah, okay. he's the heroic lead in that one in, a, in an adaptation of a novel by Dennis Wheatley, who was a friend of Christopher Lee's. And that's an interesting sort of satanic cult film mm-hmm. with um, some, some well-known folks in it that people will recognize other actors in it. But those are probably the two best they did in the 60s. Okay, well, that, that's, that's good. I appreciate those recommendations. Now, um, how, you know, I know that these films will probably have, you know, rights and accessibility that's all over the place. Some that are probably fairly obscure and hard to find. Uh, are there any particular, you know, collections or sources for, you know, kind of what is your go-to spot for, for Hammer films in the year 2022? I think that they're mostly things you have to acquire on disc these days. Um, okay. Like then, separately, there's yeah. not like a comprehensive well, hammer. Horror. Yeah, I'm not sure about their in print status. I know indicator okay. released like hammer sets at one. Point, okay. But I don't know if the indicator sets are still like in print. Okay. Stuff yeah, okay. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. It seems like this would be pretty ripe material for like, yeah. you know, four to six film box sets you know yeah Uh, but yeah with indicator yeah they do kind of do special editions out of print type of stuff there so one of my jump uh, on it while you can yeah one of my original deep dives on dvd was that i owned a 21 film dvd set of horror okay but on on blu-ray there hasn't been that much outside of the indicator sets that like collect a lot you know okay shout factory have released a lot of hammer stuff on on blue but it's all individual titles Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do want. It seems like it's probably not any any bit likely that Criterion's going to 
try to snag a few of these and release them themselves. I, you know, I think there's yeah. other labels that maybe do that kind of stuff better. And even though they, they like to have representation of all different genres and important film movements, I mean, they can't be everything to everybody. And I think that's is probably just outside their orbit enough that, you know, having them stream on the channel every so often is probably about as close as we're going to get. Yeah. Would I, you agree? Yeah. I would think so. I also think there's, some competition for them, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like even yeah, yeah, yeah. The arrows and indicators and other labels, the Scream Factory, they would yeah. probably say, yeah, this is going to be in our wheelhouse more than Criterion's, and they'd probably be willing to to bid more even. And the rights are all over the place because of yeah, like, as I yeah. just told, mentioned, like they had different deals with different American studio yeah it, it seems like a pretty scrappy operation all in all you know like i say they they had to do the best they could under sometimes pretty challenging circumstances and never yeah i mean th- you get the sense that these movies made money but it wasn't like bottomless reservoirs of cash you know they were yeah. never like a major studio that could just you know you, you know in in this blockbuster era you you know you got one big title that makes a, a billion dollars well you've got a lot of money that you can spend on other types of projects i don't think hammer was ever anywhere close to that but they were a pretty reliable production line for the better part of the 60s and here we are kind of watching them run out of steam a little bit in ad 1972 right even at their their height of popularity it took a year or two of not selling well for suddenly them being in financial trouble. So they were never that, Mm -hmm. they were never that flush in cash. Yeah. And, and when these films played in the States, were they like part of like the drive-in circuit, double features? Did they have a standalone? Because that's the other thing too. I was, was, as I was watching these, they're not exactly kids movies. I mean, some of them are, you know, I mean, I think, um, taste the blood was actually rated r maybe that's a retroactive rating now but uh you know they were kind of hot stuff as far as you know like the the you know 12 13 year olds and younger so these weren't like saturday afternoon matinee type of movies um they were dealing i think aiming sort of more towards a young adult type i mean obviously this one was looking for the young adult audience yeah, I think the R rating must be retroactive because I don't think the rating yeah. system was in. Yeah, there was no such thing back yeah. at that time. Yeah. Maybe it would have been M or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I, I get the feeling these were, you know, they were filling out the, the major mm-hmm. studios' release pattern. So some yeah. some legit theaters, some small theaters, some drive-ins, you know, like. Yeah. But you know, especially in the '60s and early '70s, horror was young teenagers and young adults was the main audience sure yeah something that kind of freak you out a little bit there something a little bizarre um unpredictable entertaining i think that's what the young folks were looking for so you recently upgraded i saw you posted the the blu-ray um and you have the same kind of double disc uh, flipper discs four film set that i was referencing earlier uh, anything on the Blu-ray, which I think is a Warner Archive release, that uh, you're just kind of doing the upgrade because it's there, huh? Yeah, pretty much. It's it's no frills. I, I just yeah. uh, I prefer to have the best copy of everything. I'm almost pedantic about that. So, yep. Well, myself, maybe at this stage of life, I'm content with the DVDs. It got the point across, and it it looked fine. You know, so if you're looking, I mean, I got that for four films for ten bucks. If you're just looking at it from a purely economic perspective pretty great bargain (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think I'm ready to to wind this one down. So I do thank you all for checking this out, listening in, and hopefully that you uh, you know got a little bit of enjoyment hearing me and Richard talk about uh, this uh, you know fascinating little curio from 1972. Uh, the next film on my list is uh, and probably even more obscure and, and probably a lot harder to find these days. It's a one of those Merchant Ivory films back when Criterion was. Uh, with in contract with Merchant Ivory to release their films on DVD. This is a film called Savages from 1972. Uh, that'll be the next one up. So uh, it's a it's an out of print disc, and I don't even think the Cohen Collection, which now holds the rights to Merchant Ivory films, they've not released it either. So it may be a challenge for those of you to who don't have it already to track down. But we're going to talk about it anyway. So that's what's coming up next on the podcast. So. Uh, Richard, thanks again for hanging out with me tonight and giving me uh, the benefit of your insights. And uh, we'll be talking to you all soon. So take care, everybody. Bye. Oh, me.